Happy New Year. Right. I did not get the wrong sermon manuscript here. You see, today is not January 1, and I don't think it is. Today is, however, when the Christian church starts its calendar. There's something really culturally important about that fact. You see, in the wider American culture, we use New, New Year as a time to, to close the book on one season and to lean into the next. New Year's resolution represents some of our greatest ambitions, some of our greatest shoulds, our aspirations, what we should do, who we should be. Some of these things are good and true and noble, and some of them are not, (laughs) and are way less realistic, way more superficial, like gems pray on the new year because you're just going to get in shape next year. Here's the thing, though. The Christian year starts with hope. Any calendar tells the story of its culture. The academic calendar is organized around semesters and tests, and some of you guys are getting nervous to me just talking about that. The commercial calendar is around shopping days and getting the best opportunities for people to spend money. The Christian calendar, though, starts with waiting for God to show up in Advent. And then it moves on to celebrating God showing up in the season of Christmas, a whole season. Then celebrating the revelation of God's grace to the Gentiles and Epiphany, marching towards the cross in Lent, celebrating resurrection and Easter. And then the birth of the church, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. But it all starts with waiting. If this strikes you as strange, it should. Waiting is the enemy of our instant gratification impulses. Think about how frustrated you were just probably in this last week when you tried to stream a YouTube video and it had to buffer. Like, that was so annoying. Think five years ago how long it took. Like, you would like click it and start it and then leave the room and come back when it had buffered a little bit. Ten years ago, even, you possessed like Zen patience for this sort of thing with like dial up modems and stuff. So, waiting is strange. It's strange because we're geared. Everything in us is geared not to wait, not to have to wait. We try to fill the vacuum every second, every minute of our day so we don't have to wait. We don't have to sit with that cold, empty, not yet feeling. But waiting in this season is also strange Because we're essentially waiting for something that already happened. Does that strike anyone as strange? It's a strange thing to focus specifically on hope. Maybe you grew up in a church that thought this way. Why mess around with something that seems like a season that denies that Christmas already happened? That the world has changed because of it? Or maybe Advent's hard for you because it seems a little heavy-handed. A little too patient. If it seems that way, it's because it is. So this Advent, we're going to explore some of the themes that guide us each Advent season. Things like hope, love, joy, and peace. 
and we're not going to, we're going to focus in on them each week, but trying to deal with them separately is really artificial because they're really bound together. They're kind of like four legs on one chair, and if you were to take one out, it would all fall apart and you'd all fall down. The narrative of scripture, the whole story of the Bible leading up to Christ is woven throughout with these themes. And then Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and resurrection, they all clarify, they all redefine these terms so sharply. They give them a name, hope, love, joy, and peace. They give them a face. When we look in the face of Jesus of Nazareth, we see what these look like. So the, the season will focus on waiting, on preparing, on making room. And around here at Oak Church, some of the handles that you, you'll probably hear on any given Sunday that we like to use to consider our calling based on Isaiah 61, our hope, healing, and hospitality. And Advent surely is a season of heightened attention to all three of these things. But it can't just be conceptual. It can't just be hypothetical. Instead, preparing for Jesus' birth in a manger, in Bethlehem, in a time, in a place, requires that we pray and that we think and that we prepare locally this season. Because as the message version of John 1.14 reminds us, Christmas means that the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Also, over the next several weeks, I want to invite you to sing. This is a pretty like safe invitation, right? It's not a very special request. We sing each week in our worship gatherings. And I'm, realistic, and I'm realistic about the fact that several of us have sung a lot of Christmas music, even in the last, like, 48 hours, like, while you're still digesting Thanksgiving meal. Or maybe you've even sung more loudly and more passionately in the last week or so in your car to Adele's new album. It's okay. We'll have a support group. But St. Augustine kind of understands this impulse in us, Right? He said, he who sings prays twice. There's something about singing. Rowan Williams says also, to listen seriously to music and to perform it are among our most potent ways of learning what it is like to live with and before God. There's something about music. So music will guide our Advent devotion. We'll pray twice using these dense scriptural songs of hope, love, joy, and peace as we wait, as we prepare our hearts and our minds and our lives, and as we bear witness to the light coming into the darkness. Today we sang O Come, Emmanuel, and that is one of my very favorite Advent songs. I think it's the quintessential hymn of hope. It's one I think, I, I really wish we could get away with singing this every week. And if you ask Jeff, I've tried. Like, April, I've tried. July, I've tried. And he always turns me down. But this morning, I want to pull a couple of the threads of this song that teach us about hope. That teach us about 
what it is and what it's for, what hope means. First, I think hope means discontentment. A couple of weeks ago, I, I watched an interview on The Late Show, uh, the one that, whatever it's called, the one that Stephen Colbert hosts. And there was this graffiti artist on there that he interviewed, Shepard Fairey. If you don't know that name, he's the, he's the guy that does Obey uh, stuff. And if you don't know that, you probably at least would recognize his most famous work, that Obama Hope poster that um, during his first election. On the show, Ferry admitted this sort of naive genuineness and his aspiration when he made that poster. It, it, for him, it wasn't just about getting famous. It, really was about hope. From what he could tell, things were not as they should be, and the then Senator Obama represented a change, a vision for something new. This isn't all that different than the thoughts of probably many of the Republicans at the time, but for some reason, Ferry's poster tapped into an imaginative cultural vein Something in us that was ready to hope, ready to believe, ready to go all in on someone to come. Ferry and, and other street artists, their, their usual MO, how they do things, they, they take art to the streets. They let their vision live in plain sight, in the elements, in everyday life, in the way that it never would last like fine art lasts. It doesn't get put behind glass. Their art is temporary, it's fragile. Dare I say it's incarnational. It's also usually smart, but not too smart. It's kind of soft focused in that 18 inches between your head and your heart so that it captivates both and it subverts and it surprises. That thing shouldn't be there. That telephone booth shouldn't look that way. What's that trying to say? Someone with those skills shouldn't be painting on the side of a subway tunnel. We bristle because art shouldn't be so public. It shouldn't be in our face. These artists thrive on their anonymity, which is ironic since I saw this on a late show. After all, what they're doing is technically illegal. It's defacing public property. <laughs> and in the interview, you can kind of hear Ferry trying to come to grips with his celebrity status, how he attempts, in his words, to, quote, use the machinery to bring about questions, to bother, to discomfort. Even as he and other artists, like, like maybe you've heard of Banksy, they try to jar us out of complacency and into hope. A song like O Come Emmanuel does something like this. <coughs> o come, O come Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. This song begs us to step into this story of hope through our own discontentment. It helps us to pray, pray twice. 
It helps us to realize that our salvation comes from God's subversive grace that has embedded itself in our humanity. When God chooses to save, he doesn't do it at a safe distance. He gets in the thick of it. In Jesus, God gets at street level. He gives us access through such a vulnerable move. Not by protecting or putting his son behind glass, but by sending him into a dark, violent, sinful world. Into each and every one of our individual dark, violent, sinful worlds. And also into the darkness and the oppression that pervades, that exiles us. That should cause us to mourn a little bit if we're paying attention. But the truth is, I don't like to mourn. (laughs) I want my holiday cheer. I want my peppermint white mocha in my red cup. I want my Mariah Carey Christmas, you know? Actually, if I'm being honest, I want college football bowl games. I want Sufjan Stevens Christmas. And I want a book by the fire. But I assure you, my vision is no different or better than yours. If this seems heavy, hear this good news, though. Advent is less about trying to get ourselves in an exile state of mind. It's not about making ourselves feel like we're in exile. It's about snapping us out of the exile that we're actually in already. It's about reminding us of our need of a savior. Not first and foremost because we're so bad, but because this world is so broken and we're so used to it. I'm so broken and I'm so used to it. I even start to kind of like it. (laughs) I start to contribute to it. I start to participate in it. So we need some light to come in through the cracks. So this first stanza, and this is from, the, the, the song is actually built off of these very old, old, old lyrics called the O Antiphons, because they all start with O, and they all describe names for Jesus, expectations he fulfilled. They ask for God's people to be ransomed, saved, even as they mourn in lonely exile. This is such a startlingly honest look at reality. What I like to think of as hopeful realism. It's a careful look around in order to be able to say God's people are trapped and hurting and we need God to intervene. I love that. I need that. I need to be able to remember that this world is beautiful, but it's broken. And even despite all the ways that God is healing around us, we need an intervention. We need God's own son to show up. Instead of working harder or trying to be smarter or better, we need to stop and cry, O come, O come, Emmanuel. 
So hope means discontentment with the way things are. It means recognizing exile. <clears throat> it means that we shouldn't get too comfortable. Because as much as this place feels like home without God showing up to renew and to repair it, we don't belong here. We only belong where God is. Hope also means fulfillment. Emmanuel, of course, is not some abstract thing to ask for. This is not some someone, anyone sort of thing. But it's asking God himself to get involved. It's a prayer. God, be with me. Be with us. And so it's a bit of faith. It's the weakest hint of trust to say that. That God will take up his end of the bargain and do what he said. Asking for Emmanuel puts us somewhere in the middle of God's story that starts and ends with God being with us. If you're reading your Bibles well, that's that's the plot. I hope I didn't spoil anything for anyone. From his walking with our ancestors in the cool of the day in Eden's garden to his pleading with Moses, and he says to Moses, I'll go myself, I'll help you, I'll be with you. To God's presence with his wandering people and smoke by day and fire by night. To Isaiah's promise fulfilled in Matthew's gospel. The Lord will give you a sign. <coughs> the young woman is pregnant and is about to give birth to a son. And she will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. To finally, Revelation's fulfillment. Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them. Sometimes I like the obscure language of these hymns and also the, the awesome obscure picture on these hymns. When we sing it these days, I think it purposely sounds really strange. O come, thou rod of Jesse free. Who talks like that anymore? If you talk like that, no offense. I remember the first time we sang a new worship song and it had... It was a brand newly written song, and it had the word Terry in it. <laughs> and someone said, oh, I love that old song that you all sang. I was like, well, if you check the date, it was 2014. And they said, no, no one says Terry anymore. It couldn't have been old, or it couldn't have been new. We don't Terry, we just wait, you know. But something in lines like this, something jars us. It causes us to remember that we're linked to an old, old story, to a lineage. The defining characteristic of God's people has always been that God might be with them. Not even their past, things they'd done that they could have controlled, or things that they couldn't control, like their race, could keep God from transplanting them into his purposes could keep them from being able to grow up out of 
to grow into his will. So we have really bizarre pictures of Jesse the tree. (laughs) That's what he wants to do for you and I right now. To bring us into his story, to bring us back into his story. To pull us from the depths of hell and free us from death. And also from the fear of death. When God entered the world in Christ, it marked the climax of his long mission to defeat death and to defeat the disruption sin caused in the garden. So hope means fulfillment of God's plan to redeem his creation by entering in to his creation, to defeat death by sending Christ to live and to die, to achieve victory by his spirit raising his son from the dead. He's included you and I in this story. He's given us a part to play. Will you step into that role? We'll see a lot of our kids playing these roles next week. Will you step into a role as a beloved son or daughter? Romans 11 says, grafted in like a wild olive branch, but sustained by a root, a root that produces rich oil and good fruit. Hope means fulfillment. And finally, I think hope also means a desire for peace. And this this picture up here is actually from yesterday. And, And it's also on the front page of the Herald Sun. Hope means a desire for peace, a growing desire for God's shalom, for wholeness and healing to invade and to mend our lives, that we might be the the put-right people of God set to putting the world to rights. Yesterday, several of us here spent an hour or so at a visual from that picture, a few blocks away at Gary's house. Gary was our host. On November 8th, a a 25-year-old man named Ricardo, his friends and his family called him Chewy. He was shot and killed uh, right in the middle of the neighborhood. Like, you could see it at Food Line. You could see it. I I remember seeing the fresh crime scene that morning uh, when I was going to buy communion bread at Food Line. We prayed... Uh, yesterday for his family, we, we especially prayed for his 11-month-old daughter. We heard stories of, of who he was, who, who they'd want to remember him as. And I could not help but be struck with how present God was there, just like right in front of Gary's house, right there. We, we all had our little candles. How present God was. Emmanuel, in that grief, in that mourning, God with us, in a group of strangers gathered to remember someone who we'd never before met. I think God was present because even gathering in the midst of that kind of pain and that kind of shame and that kind of fear is a witness to his peace. 
is an act of peacemaking. Being with people who are so beside themselves that they don't know how to feel, they don't know how to act, they don't know what to say, or they don't know when it's all going to get better or if it's ever really going to get better. Just being with them is an, a witness. It's an act of peace. It all seems so feeble. We had our little candles out there, lighting tiny candles in the face of insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable violence. But hope remembers that's exactly how God brings about peace. Hope knows Jesus as the Prince of Peace. And if we remember the details of Jesus' own birth, we remember that he was born into a genocide of male babies being systematically killed because Herod couldn't risk one of them being the true king, the one with the government upon his shoulder. And then Paul, who never met Jesus the first time around, he only met the resurrected Christ, comes to talk about this manifested in his own life, something I think we can all identify with, where God's grace has to be enough. He says, my grace is enough for you because power is made perfect in weakness. Paul also connected peace and hope somewhere else in, in his letter to the Romans. And, and this is a, <coughs> we're almost done here. But he says in Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been made righteous through his faithfulness, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access by faith into his grace in which we stand through him and we boast in the hope of God's glory. But not only that, we even take pride in our problems because we know that trouble produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. This hope doesn't put us to shame because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you see how tangled all those themes are in there? Hope, peace, joy, love. Peace is made possible through God's faithfulness shown to us in Jesus. This transforms even the ways we look at our problems. Everyone's got problems. The way we look at our hurts, the way we look at the suffering of our neighbors in world, it gives us hope. Hope that won't disappoint. Hope that we need not be ashamed of. Hope cultivated by the right kind of waiting. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you and we rejoice that Emmanuel has come to us. We pray over these next weeks that you teach us hope, that you school us in it, that you help us wait well, wait patiently, but 
that that patience might produce hope, the kind of hope that jars us and makes us discontent with the way things are, that expects, that has faith that you'll show up, that you continue to show up over and over. I pray that that hope might remind us that you've fulfilled all your promises and everything that you promised to us is a yes and amen in Christ. And we pray that this hope manifests itself by our desire for peace. Peace in our homes. Peace with our neighbors. Peace in our city and peace in our world. Because you said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We pray all this in your child's name, Jesus. Amen.